Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 41, The Last Days of New Netherland. Remember that this is a listener-supported podcast. If you want to support the show, then please consider signing up for our membership series. It only costs $4.99 per month, which gives you access to our exclusive premium series on the Aztecs, with a new episode every two weeks. Just go to the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, and click on the PayPal subscription button. Last time out, we wrapped up the brief history of New Sweden, and then got back to New Netherland. Only this time covering the actual narrative, rather than a brief overview. The biggest issue New Netherland faced in the late 1620s and 1630s was attracting migrants. It was far less appealing a destination than, for example, New Holland, on the northeastern coast of Brazil. The Dutch West India Company, while it admittedly was preoccupied with New Holland, did make some efforts to rectify the situation. It introduced patroonships, whereby a person would be given a grant of land to rule in a feudal manner if they brought over 50 people, but the only patroonship to have any success was that founded by Kilein van Rensselaer. Rensselaerwijk. This failed to attract individual settlers, and because of trading restrictions, had not proved popular with potential investors who saw New Netherland as high risk and low profit. The initial population of New Netherland in 1628 was around 270. This had risen to 300 by 1630, but by 1640 it was still only at 500. It was troublingly small. During this decade, the colony suffered with economic stagnation. There was an official audit in 1644, which discovered that while New Netherland produced around 50 to 70,000 guilders each year, it had cost the company 550,000 guilders. In order to operate, the company needed a million guilders, and it was not going to find that wealth on the Hudson. The States General pushed to the company to reform its methods of attracting settlers. This is where we left things. We now begin with the result of all this pushing, the Charter of Freedoms and Exemptions, which was produced in 1640. What this charter laid out were the terms for a new system of land division, with a greater emphasis on smaller groups rather than the large patroonships. If anyone brought with them five adult settlers, then they would receive a grant of 200 acres, and there was also a guarantee of self-government on the local level. They could nominate local magistrates from themselves, and the best qualified, which would be selected by the director and the council. There was, however, an issue. This land could only be granted after it had been secured from the Indians, and what this led to was a flood of private negotiations with Indians for plots of land, which were often highly deceptive to the Indians, and then forced through the New Netherland administration. The process got so out of hand that in 1652 the practice was outlawed. 
there was another problem. The Dutch themselves weren't particularly keen on making the voyage to New Netherland. Life in the Netherlands wasn't exactly easy, but saying that, life in the 17th century wasn't easy anywhere. At least the Netherlands were familiar, it was comparatively safe, there wasn't massive unemployment, and if you worked hard, it was generally possible to get by. There wasn't a persecuted religious group, like the Puritans of England. There weren't a large number of second sons in the Dutch aristocracy looking for an alternative life. Indeed, opportunity was quite difficult for the individual because of the overbearing nature of the company. This meant that if potential colonists could not be found domestically, they would need to look beyond their borders. Settlers were found from across northern and western Europe. Almost 40% of the colonists to arrive at Rensselaerwijk in the 1630s were either from England, Norway, or the German principalities. This was, to some extent, only a part of the process of the English gaining dominance in the region. If you think back to our episodes covering New England in the 1630s and early 1640s, we talked about the mass immigration to Massachusetts Bay, which was leading the population to begin its push west. The English were pushing into the Connecticut Valley, and were beginning to create settlements on Long Island. This too was an important feature over the next two decades, as the relationship between the Dutch and English grew more and more tense. It was one thing for the two groups of colonists to be dimly aware of each other, one group on Massachusetts Bay and the Chesapeake, another on the Hudson. But this, this was altogether different. With the English on Long Island and the Connecticut Valley, they could get a good view of the Dutch at New Amsterdam, and, just as importantly, the Dutch could see the English. The Dutch looked at the English and didn't understand their need to travel in groups. Whenever they moved to a new area, they always travelled in groups and set up a town. The Dutch were content to travel as families and didn't feel like a town was necessary. It was left to the company to try and create social units, but such things are very difficult to engineer. It took until 1646 for the first Dutch town to reach chartered status, something that only nine towns would do during the history of the colony. There was another element to this, which went hand in hand with the English village. Democracy. The Dutch were very envious of the townships of New England with their yearly elections, They had no say in the running of their colony. But we are beginning to get off track. The 1640 Charter of Freedoms and Exemptions is what we are talking about. Did it work? Yes. Well, sort of, a bit, kind of, not really, actually, no, not at all. That 
answer may leave you a bit confused, so let me explain what I'm talking about. The population was still around 500 by 1640, but by 1643 it had more than doubled, and was nearly approaching 2000. On the face of it, it looks like the charter was really successful, but here is a lesson for you from the mouth of Homer Simpson. Facts are meaningless. You can use facts to prove anything that's even remotely true. Yes, that is a Simpsons line, and it is a joke. But like a lot of Simpsons lines, it has a lot of truth in it. In this particular instance, you can use the facts that the population more than doubled in around five years to prove that the policy was successful, because it is remotely true. But facts can be problematic. Those facts, for example, are highly misleading. This population boom was not made up of long-term settlers, but those eager to make some quick money. As soon as they turned a profit, they left. But this wasn't the real reason for the failure of the policy. That had far more to do with Willem Kieft, director of New Netherland between 1638 and 1647. Kieft led New Netherland into a war with all its Indian neighbours, which completely exhausted it. I mentioned earlier this episode about the problems caused by individuals negotiating with the Indians in good faith, and then reneging on their promises. As time went on, the amount of land purchased grew, including Queens in 1639, and the purchase of Brooklyn was completed in 1640. Negotiations deteriorated, and as they deteriorated, it became harder and harder for the Dutch and the Indians to live together peacefully. And then there was the final nail in the coffin, when, in order to support fortifications and the maintenance of their military force, Kieft attempted to tax the Indians. It was a foolish decision that provoked a few Indian raids in the summer of 1641, which Kieft responded to with war, which lasted intermittently until 1645. It was a war characterised by brutal attacks from both sides, but here was the crucial thing. While the Dutch could be reinforced from Europe, and New Netherland would recover under the governorship of Peter Servaisant, the Indians couldn't. A thousand Indians were killed, which was a devastating blow. While peace had been brought for the moment, it shouldn't be a surprise that they would remain hostile to the Dutch and would cause them future problems. The policy was a terrible one. Intimidating the Indians in order to scare them into submission wouldn't work, and the Dutch all seemed to have realised this, apart from Kieft. When this was combined with their observations of the English townships, they began to develop a political conscience. A council was created, which fluctuated in size, but caused a great deal of trouble for Kieft, and they wrote back to Amsterdam and managed to force him out in 1645, although it would take another two years for the new director to arrive in the colony, 
which, at this point, had a population of a thousand people in New Amsterdam, in addition to several smaller settlements around what would become New York and those up the Hudson. I want to end this week with a quote from Colonial New York, a history by Michael Carmen. Quote, This was New Netherland after two decades of settlement. Several months sail from Amsterdam, with fully four months not uncommon. The voyage home was easier, one to two months, because of the favourable westerlies. The company had pursued a series of seemingly contradictory policies, vacillating between colonisation as a priority and the simple preservation of its fur monopoly. Between 1624 and 1628, the company made almost no concessions to its colonists. From 1628 to 1631, it opened the possibility of patroonships and, just as quickly, fell under the influence of directors who stressed the need for short-term profits. But little economic growth occurred anyway, so that the 1630s were years of regression. In 1639-1640, the company committed itself to a policy of colonisation through agricultural development, and once Keeft's insane policy of intimidating the Indians had ended in 1645, the planting of institutional roots and social growth became possible. That was the story of the Stavacent years, 1647-1664. Some 15 men tried to govern New Netherland and New York during the course of the 17th century. They were not, on the whole, an impressive lot. A considerable number, including Minuit, Van Twiller, Kieft, Lovelace in 1673 and Andros in 1680, were recalled in disgrace and required to defend themselves against charges of maladministration. Several of them, certainly, did serve as scapegoats for the sins of others, or for circumstances beyond anyone's control. But, by and large, the early governors were not especially able. The exceptions were Stavacent, Nichols, and Dongan. Stavacent ruled for 17 years, the longest tenure of any governor in the history of colonial New York, and he most certainly left his stamp upon the province. End quote. If you've enjoyed today's episode, remember you can find more information online. You can visit the website if you want to sign up for membership, thehistoryofpodcast.com. You can connect on social media. The best way of doing that is Twitter, at HistoryJamie, and Facebook, facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast. You can also send me an email if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next week. Thank you.